this week. We speak with Joe Garcia from CyberArk. In the news segment, attackers take a dash for salt, a bad image for Android, a fuzzy border for security, a whisper of warning for hard-coded credentials, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. As the world of software-driven everything becomes a reality and development cycles speed up, sales teams are taking a new approach to application security, one that enables security teams to scale by empowering developers to integrate security into their development workflows and tool sets, all while giving security teams the visibility and control they need. Sneak helps software-driven businesses develop fast and stay secure with a developer-first solution that seamlessly and proactively finds and fixes vulnerabilities in open-source libraries and containers. Learn more and see the solution for yourself at security weekly.com forward slash sneak. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 107, recorded May 11th, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hello, Matt. Good morning. Happy Monday. Good morning and happy Monday. And we also have a John Kinsella with us. Hello, John. We do have a John Kinsella. Happy Monday. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Hopefully everybody had a great weekend and hopefully everybody recognized or at least noticed that it was a weekend and that this is actually now a Monday. Uh, join the Security Weekly mailing list by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. We will be starting to roll out our public Discord channel the next week or so and our mailing list subscribers will get the first invite. Uh, join, come say hi, that'd be fun. Learn how penetration testing reduces risk in our next live webcast with Core Security, a help systems company. Register for upcoming webcasts or virtual trainings by visiting securityweekly.com webcasts. You can also access our on-demand library of previously recorded webcasts and trainings by visiting securityweekly.com on-demand. As a DevOps security engineer, Joe Garcia has a strong background in DevOps, cloud, and security, and is currently focusing, focused on helping customers implement and scale effective secrets management solutions. As CyberArk's subject matter expert in automation, Joe shares CyberArk's vision of building a security community that is as agile as the automation they are securing in today's fast-paced environments. You can typically find him spreading that shared vision at DevOps events, conferences, webinars, podcasts, perhaps just like this one, and anywhere automation is a hot topic. Hello, Joe. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate you guys inviting me on the show. <clears throat> well, we're and, happy to and have events you here. now oh. means anywhere virtually events. Because <laughs> physical events <laughs> are right. done after Friday, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> 
they are done. Physical events are done. But even if physical events are done, DevOps teams are still, uh, what, what was the phrase? They're still uh, implementing, uh, well, effective secrets management at scale, but they're all just, just moving automation at scale and speed. And I think, Joe, that was one of the things that you were um, really focusing on, or I think one of the things we wanted to chat about here is how can security make sure it keeps up with what developers are doing? And I kind of it purposefully left what developers are doing kind of general, a little bit vague, since they're doing a lot and security needs to. Yeah. Um, but we also mentioned secrets management there, um, as I sure. hiss that word out. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm curious, what, if we just say in general, how does security keep up with DevOps? What you know, what does that look like for the big picture for you? And then what are some areas that you see that security could really do some different thinking or some just better automation for, for those DevOps teams? Sure, yeah. So um, if, if we all remember the history that security has when it comes to developers, we're, we're not really liked, you know? Me being a security guy uh, in the past before, you know, more agile methods were introduced, I wouldn't really typically figure out about an application that maybe I needed to scan or, or do some AppSec on until the point it was about to make it into production because we were very concerned with what was going into production. There wasn't really that communication between developers and security at the time um, for them to really be able to work together. Developers saw us as the huge 10,000 pound bear that just wants to slow everything down. And today with the more agile methodologies, uh, methodology, oh my gosh, I am tongue tied, (laughs) methodologies, uh, we now um, need to start dealing with them in a little bit different way. They have these preconceived notions the developers do of, of security and they don't like us. So it all comes across first and foremost, I think, in our messaging, right? If we're going to go to a DevOps team or a developer team and talk to them or start to introduce the idea of security, uh, we can't approach it like, um, you know, hey, look, what have you guys got going on? Where your secret's at? Like, let's start there and we'll start securing those. We need to approach them and be like, look, we understand you guys have shorter timelines now because you're doing things so fast and your release cycles are are shortening and, and they're becoming a lot quicker and you're more agile as a developer. How can security keep up with you and not affect you and still be able to do what we were doing before? Like, let's work together. Let's open the dialogue. And I think if we approach it in that manner, the developers won't immediately hide in the corner shut down and then say, here comes security to blow everything up. It's really how we approach them in the first place to start to gain that confidence back. Joe, you yeah. know, obviously we've been in this, some of us have been around the space for a long time and we were always, you know, security guys were always that department of know that always sat yep. blocking the project from going out. But I think what you what you describe is true because I think there's multiple ways, there's multiple options on how to secure applications these days. And if we take a very kind of inquisitive approach where we say, look, we know you've got secrets that need to be managed. We know security needs to get embedded in these applications. There's different ways we can do it. Let's find a solution that works for you as development and for us from a security perspective, and let's try to Mm -hmm. figure out how to integrate that. And I think it starts with that communication. I've seen a lot of improvement in in this area over the past couple of years. But before that, I mean, it was like the the, the two teams wouldn't talk. Any any, Mm -hmm. uh, suggestions or ideas on 
how do you start that dialogue? If you're a security sure. um, in the security team on the AppSec side, you know, mm-hmm. what does that what does that initial conversation kind of look like? Yeah, so I mean, we just have to keep in mind that developers are very simple at their core, right? What is the one thing that a developer doesn't want to do? I mean, it's the same thing that security doesn't want to do. We don't want to work twice, so why would a developer? We can't it's a lot harder to have a conversation with a developer when they've already gone halfway down a path. And then we realize when they're halfway down that path, oh, maybe we should introduce some security into this, whether it's secrets management or or some other means of security, uh, and then expect them to backtrack, right? And then redo their work all over again. They don't want to change code. It's it, plain and simple. If there was one tip out there for, for people in security, you know, uh, don't approach a developer and, and and tell them that that you're going to change their code. Maybe right away, that will definitely turn them off from having the discussion in the first place. Uh, what I actually recommend is to start at the developer's endpoint to introduce security there, and the security will then flow into the pipelines and the environments. So if we focus on that developer endpoint, you know, what are they doing? Well, they're doing local tests on their laptop before they push anything anywhere, right? So giving them a means that makes sense to them to start securing their secrets at the time of development rather than waiting until they're starting to go into pipelines in different environments to start to introduce that security. And then they have to go back and change their code to either work with an API or work with the platform's credential storage or whatever methods the security team has come up with securing. We you have mean, a lot of the great... username and password in the code as part of your initial testing is probably not a good idea. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we have uh, a great open source community at CyberArk that came um to us when we acquired Conjure about three years ago now. Uh, And we've started our own open source community called CyberArk Commons, where developers can go and start to explore some open source solutions that they can use to start to introduce security in from the inception of their code. Uh, What we're finding now is that, you know, developers are creatures of habit. And they've been used for very long to going into an office, sitting in a cubicle farm and having developers to their left and to their right that they can bounce ideas off of. They don't have to worry about leaking IP. We don't have to worry about them leaking IP, but that's not the case anymore. They're working from home for the first time in in, in maybe their career, and they don't have that friend to the left and to the right. Well, I, I know, you know, developers have coworkers more so than friends. I think we had that discussion before, but (laughs) either way, they don't have somebody next to them to bounce ideas off of. What they have are their new friends, Stack Overflow and all of the other communities out there that are going to contribute to what source code they present. And if they're not using secure means on their endpoint, guess what? There's secrets that are flowing into the public space of the internet that can easily be plucked out and used if they gain access to the develop- developer's endpoint, or even if they're working in the cloud in a cloud native application. Well, now we have a way of possibly getting into there just using test credentials. Yeah, I think, and already, you know, Matt, Matt's talking about, you know, hard coded credentials that shouldn't happen. Um, and maybe people understand that and that, you know, that username and password to your MySQL database shouldn't be hard coded. But 
hopefully people still recognize that the, all those API tokens and those secret keys for AWS or GCP or Azure or, you know, some other third party, you know, B2B type of um, API, those are secrets as well, even if they're not explicitly mm -hmm. a username and password. Right. So those have to be protected. And you were talking to a lot, Joe, about, you know, not having to change their code. I, I think right. there's a little bit, maybe I'll, I'll poke at that a bit and saying maybe they need to change their code once, but it's actually in their best interest. And even as you were saying, they're working, they're doing local testing on, on their laptop. Well, if you've got mm -hmm. a Mac laptop, for example, you can just uh, drop that secret into the local keychain. And already That's you're right. instilling that technique of saying, oh, this is a secret. Let's just drop it into the keychain and protect it. Now, obviously, the rest of my development and deployment pipeline doesn't have that keychain and it's going to be kind of hard to figure that out. But I think where you're kind of going with that discussion with, uh, you know, open source tools is that mm -hmm. now you can actually do that. And the reason I was, one of the reasons I was jumping on that is that Obviously, if you have a hard-coded your credential, you got to change the code when you need to rotate mm -hmm. those keys. But if you're using a vaulting, suddenly rotation actually can be a lot better. And whether it is by accident or by a compromise or some other reason, key rotation is actually one of the very important aspects of managing secrets. So I'm curious what that kind of, like, what are these additional benefits you see sure. of of talking, you know, encouraging developers to say, hey, you, you will need to make some changes to your code, but guess what? It just needs to be done once and look at all these benefits that come from it. Right. And and so we've got we've got two methods at CyberArk where we can we can solve this problem, right? It's a it's a normal problem that we see a lot. And it's not it's not just a problem with source code, but it can also occur with uh, you know, using CLIs, for example, the AWS CLI or a Docker CLI. If you log into to somewhere, they're creating a JSON file on your file system that has the plain text secrets, whether it's the access key information or for Docker, it's your Docker Hub login credentials. All of this is being stored on your local file system in plain text. So if we were able to introduce something to developers early on, uh, such as our solution Summon, which is open source, the whole idea behind Summon is that rather than uh, uh, having a secret hard-coded, you as a developer in your source code would reference an environment variable. So let's say we're talking about a Python script. In order to run that Python script, you have to invoke Python and then the script. Uh, so there is a Python process that starts and runs the actions within your script. What Summon does is Summon can provide specific environment variables only to the Python process itself, keeps it off the local mm -hmm. file system. And then from there, as long as that process is running, your application script can feed off of those environment variables and the secrets within. So this is a, a good and easy way of, of providing secrets to source code when you're locally testing. And you could pull those. We have providers for Summon that can pull those from the OSX keychain or a Linux key ring or your Windows credential manager. And even further to that fact, I do a lot of development on my own myself so that I can keep a good developer mindset. And I've created an open source tool that is able to store easily you, through a CLI called Conceal, uh, it's out on GitHub, you can store your secrets easily for use by our summon utility. So you don't even have to do anything but conceal the name of the secret. You get prompted to enter the secret value in securely, and it takes care of putting it into your OSX keychain for you. And then from there, you can start to pull down. And that'll make it easy to rotate, too, if you're working in a, on a local developer 
uh, endpoint. CyberArks. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Joe, I think that's a great initial use case because it's the one that actually Paul's used for our own application. He wanted to get make sure we didn't have any secrets embedded in our code, so he uses environment variables to store those to get them out of the source code so they're not being stored in the Git repository so they're not available Mm -hmm. to attackers. So I think that's Mm -hmm. a really great first step. And by having some good open source tools to help you manage that a little better is great because that is one step forward uh, in the chain. There's a couple more steps he needs to do, and I'm sure we'll get to those later, but I think that's a great first step. So yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, as you get comfortable with that method, you know, what CyberArk is, is trying to do, our, our ultimate goal at the end of the day, we don't want developers to worry about secrets at all. So we actually came up with an open source project now. Uh, I'm wearing the shirt, by the way. Uh, you can go to the website at secretless.io or come to conjure.org and check it out there. Uh, but essentially, what this project allows you to do is not even have the developers need to know what the credential is in the first place. They could make an unauthenticated request to a database backend, and we'll have our secretless uh, binary or sidecar proxy, if we're talking in terms of Kubernetes, take control of the communication by listening on the port for the database, whether it's 3306 for MySQL or what the, what, you know, any of the other ones, and we'll go ahead and take over that communication before it reaches the back end. Based on policy, security policy in our solution, inject the secrets into that communication and finish it off. So we'll control that. And if you decide you want to rotate on the back end, the secrets will, guess what? That, con- that communication, that connection is constant. You don't need to actually update the credentials of the connection until you s- disconnect and then try to reconnect. And we can then, using secretless, the developer doesn't need to change any of their code. They could authenticate with dummy token for all I care. And we'll be able to then provide that rotated credential on the next connection. And you're not breaking that access to the backend data at all. And there's no secrets in the source code to leak. So that sounds interesting, Joe, but then how do you, so you basically just created an open, it, it sounds like you're creating an open proxy. I don't want to say you are, but so you know this question's coming. How do you control who actually then accesses that connection or not? Right, so the application is is done uh, by listening to a Unix socket locally on the application. Uh, so if you have somebody who breaks into your Kubernetes cluster and can access the pod all the way down to the application level and then start messing with the Unix socket, we probably have to step back a bit and figure out how they got access to the cluster in the first place. So it's it's not, I'm not saying that it's a completely foolproof scenario. I'm just saying that in order to get to that point, there's a lot of other bad things that have to occur first. Sure, so there's like you're not doing, at least you're not doing a TCP socket. Privileges in a container. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We're listening over the socket. Uh, support HTTP as well. So if you deal with any service-to-service APIs or anything like that, um, we can also provide unauthenticated access to that. Uh, definitely go to our website, check it out. It has a lot more information than I could even say in, in the in the few minutes that we have left in here. Uh, but I definitely wanted to bring it up and bring it to everyone's attention. Uh, it's gotten good feedback from uh, Spiffy, for example. So if you're looking to be Spiffy compliant, uh, we're working closely with them to make sure that we fall into their uh, compliance guidelines. 
I love. I, I actually, I have to interject too because as uh, as somebody who's been playing Dungeons and Dragons for a couple of decades, Conjure and Summon are already uh, <laughs> music to my ears and making me think yep. of how we can tease some transmutation in here. Um, I also want to follow up a little bit on kind of what, where where John was going with that because you're talking about here's some ways of storing secrets and that way um, even the developers don't have direct access to the secrets or even know what the actual secret is, mm-hmm. but they can get passed around. Um, but what about you know that aspect of identity? What are some ways, or how do you see different approaches to identity management? So rather than saying you and I have a shared secret, we more have an attestation that yep, I'm actually the real Mike Shima. This guy over here is actually the real John Kinsella, and you're Joe Garcia over there. Um, and we don't yeah. have to push around shared secrets. Right. So uh, we actually do at the end of the maturity. Uh, into using our product, our bread and butter is our enterprise password vault. So, you know, at the end of the day, we can talk about dynamic access and and how to deal with that. Our bread and butter is still going to be the username and password combination, the Windows admins, the Unix admins, things like that. Uh, so we have a human interface that we would move everyone through. We call it our password vault web access. And at the end, one uh, at the end of the maturity of of migrating to a solution like that or deploying a solution like that is actually functional shared accounts. Uh, The reason that we actually recommend that is because if we have a department of 10 people who happen to all be domain administrators, we don't need one domain administrator account for each one. That's actually going to increase our attack surface slightly by each one having a one-to-one credential. We would rather pare it down to say like maybe five, three or five people need access at any one time. So we'll create those functional shared accounts. But because they're stored in our solution, we track all of the auditing. A user has to log in in order to access the credential in the first place. So we know who they are. We know when they check out the password. We know when they securely connect while we're monitoring it to another endpoint. And we can track all of this information in our own audit logs. So we really like it when people use our solution because what we end up finding as we start to talk to these enterprises is that uh, in your pipeline, for example, you'll have Jenkins and Jenkins has its credential store. You have Ansible Tower and they have their own credential section. You have Artifactory with its own secrets. Every solution has their own way of dealing with secrets. Uh, But what ends up happening is how do you rotate them? You've created islands of security. And on top of that, islands of audit as well. I mean, all of this audit data has to go somewhere. Parsing it, piecemealing it, putting it together is very hard to do. But if you're not monitoring your automation, then you've got other issues that maybe you need to start thinking about because, you know, yeah, we're good at monitoring humans and stuff because we need to, but we just assume automation will always do what it it can or what what it's told to do when we're not really checking what it's being told. Has that changed at all? Has it not changed? You know, is it still relevant? So all of that uh, is is all a, a part of the the core PaaS solution, our privileged access security solution. Yeah, I, I love that idea of security islands. As somebody who's also playing uh, Animal Crossing, it can be cumbersome <laughs> though to get people to invite you over to your island. Yeah, um, and it's not quite so easy. Um, so yeah, there, there's there, there's definitely something to be said that you can coordinate secrets among all of these islands and rotate them. And um, we haven't really, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over the fact that um, you've been mentioning auditing a couple times too. That because that's mm-hmm. also important. Because I'm uh, think basically I'll, I'll list off all the things I'm fan of. I'm also 
also, geekily enough, a fan of uh, NIST uh, SP863 um, because they came out and said, you don't really actually have to rotate your secrets, your password every 90 days just for the sake of rotation. Mm-hmm. Rotate them if there's evidence of compromise, for example. Right. And right. so here's where we're talking to. If we have a good way to audit and we can say, oh, only these 10 people in this group have accessed you know, this secret or only our production systems have accessed this particular secret, we don't need to, to, to rotate it. And we actually have confidence now that we can say that a compromise, if it did occur uh, with higher confidence, it didn't compromise it or it did. And therefore right. we actually will rotate and so on. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's also uh, meant to coincide with some sort of multi-factor authentication as well, yep. um, so that you have two factors that you're authenticating with, and and that way you can, you know, <clears throat> be sure that everything is good. What what we end up finding out is that a lot of our customers uh, that we deal with on a regular basis, they start to go down that road of securing for that or either PCI DSS. That's my audit background. I come from a financial uh, uh, before I worked for CyberArk. Um, and, and what we found was that it becomes very cumbersome to apply MFA to tens of thousands of servers or, or dynamically to EC2 or, you know, depending on what you've got going on, it, it's very hard to do. Uh, but what a lot of these uh, certification uh, and framework uh, guidelines have started to accept is us as the MFA, so long as the access is secured through us. So what they'll do instead is use us for MFA on the front end of our user interface. And then their user, their end users can only connect to endpoints that are secured through our solution. So we become the MFA front end. These enterprises no longer have to have MFA in front of their servers because no one should be accessing them directly. They should be going through our solution, at which point we've got full auditing on and we know everything that's going inside from Windows session titles, we can see every Windows, uh, every window title that, that was pulled up in a Windows session, uh, take actions on it automatically using privileged threat analytics. There are so many things we could go into. It's insane. Uh, but all of this, you know, comes together to provide uh, a very hands-off and, and, and normal user experience to developers. They don't have to log into our solution. They can use a remote desktop manager to make that connection. But at the end of the day, it's coming through our solution. It's being audited. It's being monitored. And administrators of our solution can take action when they are alerted to any threats or you know, maybe regedit opened up. Well, let's suspend that session and see what they're trying to do in the registry editor before we allow it to continue. And so we can do that. Yeah, Joe, that's great. Joe, from a development perspective, right, let, let's kind of walk through the, just give us a quick walk through the steps. How do I get from what I'm doing today, embedding secrets in my code, to some of the open source tools, and then how does that ultimately lead to the full end of the maturity stack? Sure. Can, can you give us kind of a simple, like three, sure. four step process to get there? I'll tell you what I do. Um, you know, because I use our solution throughout my own processes and stuff, so that I can try to experience the same way as developers do. Um, and where I start is uh, I use my OSX keychain for all of my different, uh, you know. OIDC tokens and client keys and things like this for when I'm trying to deal with REST APIs or other stuff. And so I'll store that in my MacBook's OSX keychain for when I'm developing. And the cool thing about that is that uh, Summon will introduce the environment variables through using a YAML file. 
where you provide the environment variable name on one side and the path to the secret as it exists in, I guess in this instance, OSX keychain. So what that allows the developer to do is get rid of their manifest file that has all of their plain text secrets, replace it with our YAML file, and now they can still continue to code based off of environment variables, except they're not keeping those secrets in plain text in their config file or manifest. From there, the secret names that are used in my solution are also available in my Conjure open source solution that I run with. I don't use Enterprise. Um, and so when my code flows and the secrets YAML file flows into the pipeline to begin testing, I don't need to make any changes to my code or to that secrets YAML file. The change occurs in that my Conjure open source instance that I'm testing with has different credentials, but the same variable name. So I'm bringing in I'm bringing in different credentials, but at the same time not having to change my code. And that can go through staging. It can go through, all the way through to production, where maybe DAP, our dynamic access provider, which is the enterprise version of Conjure, lives. And in that way, from the developer's endpoint all the way through production. We have the same security policy. We have the same naming structure, naming convention for automation purposes, right? Throughout the entire process. And at the end of the day, once it gets to production, we're good to go. We're using production secrets. It's all being audited. And we know because we've tested this from the inception of the source code that it's going to work in production. There's no more security shutdown saying, hey, wait, we haven't tested our security tools yet. Let's spin it up over here and start to introduce those and see what happens. We've already tested it multiple times and we can have confidence that we can release on schedule. That's great. I also want to loop back to something you said uh, way back at the very beginning. Uh, you're saying mm -hmm. you know, developers perhaps don't always understand where security is coming from or what security is asking for. Um, yeah. There's also the opposite of that. Security doesn't always necessarily understand what developers need or how developers are operating, um, both in just ease of development as well as maintaining and supporting production systems at scalability and high you know um, high availability and managing high capacity what are some other things that you or maybe what what are some topics or some areas that you see security as you know security people that they should be diving in or start to consider more of to better appreciate um, getting up to speed with devs to you know to to go back to that particular theme yeah, that's a great question. I, I really feel that, you know, there's there's going to be, uh, and there already is a need for it, but there there needs to be a new breed of security professional. I, I think the, the old days of, um, you know, uh, of getting by without really knowing any scripting languages are, are, are going to to go away. I mean, at the minimum, Python is an easy language with a lot of resources and a huge community out there that will get you on par with having a discussion that makes sense with the developers. You know, they're going to probably bring up like a lot of logic gates and things like that when you talk to them. And if you don't have that simple programming logic of understanding what if then else is or try catch or this or that, it's going to be very hard to, to work with them to to get things uh, kind of situated or to even know what the developers are doing. Um, I think that it, it's going to be more of a proving by doing when it comes to the developers finally gaining confidence and security. Uh, so just having that conversation of how can we 
you know, do this, but in a, in a manner that doesn't obstruct what you're already doing. You know what I mean? We have to come up with new and innovative ways, think out of the box to kind of keep up with them. A lot of uh, what I've seen is, is security teams who happen to be lucky enough to have someone who understands uh, DevOps and, and the agile methodology uh, be on their team and start to create a, a, a SecOps pipeline that coincides with the DevOps pipeline. So as you're pushing through your releases, at the end, it'll go through a SecOps pipeline where it's checking the container, for example, for vulnerabilities and running scans on that, maybe using SNCC. I saw the uh, <laughs> the little advertisement there in the beginning. I use them myself. Um, or running them through and, and looking for any secrets, right? There are great solutions out there that can actually do static code analysis for secrets. And then you can key off on us and onboard those secrets and then make sure that they're delivered to the solution securely. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to take some time and, and I'm just here to try and help, uh, our security teams that we work with kind of get over the hump of, of being scared or not knowing what to ask. Like, let's just have the conversation. Let's sit them down. Let's, let's let them know that we're here to help and we want to protect their jobs because what happens if you're the one who pushed through the poison source code? Somebody's got to be the fall guy, right? And it's going to be somebody in security, the, the developer, and then probably their managers, right? And that's typically how it would go down in a breach. Well, I think the other thing too is you've also been, uh, you know, very much of this conversation has been focusing on how to bring in open source as well to help with mm -hmm. that, um, that, that scenario. So with Conjure and some in Secretless, um, yeah. that, that's all been a great way to, to rather than just, it's one thing to easy to say, well, we need to learn some Python, need to learn some scripting. And then um, here's an example of how to protect your secrets by using Keychain. And if we just pause the conversation there, or even worse, stopped there, we haven't really solve the problem as you were talking about with these islands of secrets and mm -hmm. whatnot. So it's great to see this. So any any additional things you want to highlight about those open source projects or even for that matter, um, some areas where you'd like to pull in some more of the community to um, see them contribute to certain parts of it? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll start with the first part, which is, uh, you know, when you're like, I, I really feel deep down that if, if we start presenting our own open source security solutions to developers to start to use and explore, they'll start to accept the fact that security kind of gets what's going on, right? We understand the idea of shadow admins in the cloud, the, these admin, you know, these user accounts that have way too many privileges and they become a shadow admin and, and, and can do too much things. Well, I mean, there is an idea of shadow IT as well. And, and we tend to forget about that. If, if we're not providing the developers with options they're going to go out, they're going to find their own options, and we're not going to know about it. And then we're going to be behind the eight ball trying to play catch up to push our own ideas. Maybe we have a great relationship with a vendor, and they have good open source stuff like CyberArk, and, and you want the developers to kind of stay within that, that area. It's going to be a hard talk when they've already settled on a solution because we didn't prevent it, or present it in the first place. As far as contributions to CyberArk goes, we have a great open source community out there at uh, CyberArk Commons. And we are accepting uh, contributions to a lot of uh, our different solutions, Conjure, the open source secrets management solution on GitHub. And we've got a great community section out there that defines the rules. Summon is always accepting providers. So if you happen to use a different secret service, maybe, I don't know, Chef Databags for, for some reason, or HashiCorp Vault or something like that, and you see that there's not a 
provider available for summon, feel free to, to pull request and contribute to that. All of our guidelines are all on GitHub, um, which we're available at, and you can use that as a pivot point. But, um, but yeah, that's, that, that covers everything, I believe, from, from our end, unless you guys have any more questions. No, I think you've covered quite a bit, Joe. I want to thank you very much for uh, coming and chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. I, 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 I had fun. I appreciate it, guys. We definitely had fun, too, and um, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing, seeing some more schools of magic, like some abjuration and some illusion and some evocation pop up in those open yeah. source repos. <laughs> we have we have fun with the wizard uh, and, and witches, right? It was I think it was originally supposed to be a, a, a witch theme, but uh, it goes all over the place now. It's, it's fun. Sounds awesome. Well, thanks again, Joe. And I also want to thank uh, Matt and John for joining us once again this week and thank all of you. We're going to take a quick break and we will return with news of the week. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing our software is more challenging than ever. Synopsys enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Synopsys is the leader in application security testing. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis to learn more. By connecting to your code repository, Actrix generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Actrix at securityweekly.com forward slash Actrix. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Layer 8 is going virtual. The conference will still be held on Saturday, June 6th. Security Weekly listeners save $20 on their ticket by visiting layer8conference.com and using the promo code SECURITYWEEKLY before selecting your ticket type. Please consider supporting Layer 8 or one of their partner organizations when purchasing your ticket. Some of the Security Weekly team will be in our own channel on the Layer 8 Discord server, answering questions and possibly doing some contests. Join us at InfoSec World 2020, June 22nd to 24th, now a fully virtual event, not quite so as I um, perhaps announced last week. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World main conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com slash ISW2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code. Now, Mike, it's okay because everything is going virtual. It's moving so fast you can't even keep up. Uh, how can't many people know up. that Black Hat and DEF CON are now virtual? Because that news came out on Friday, right? And so unless you were like watching for it, you may have missed that on Friday. Today's Monday. So, you know, this stuff, this stuff's moving fast. 
Stuff's moving fast. And of course, DEFCON is also slightly pulled into the boy who cried wolf after their eternal DEFCON is canceled meme going around that in fact, DEFCON in person is canceled. But yes, they will still be going virtual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's like, no, this is a joke. It's just a joke. We're like, no, it's real. Sorry. Not actually a joke this time. Not it. Uh, not it. Unfortunately, speaking of other things that aren't a joke, um, last week, um, Matt, you had actually asked me how easy would it be to f- to um, for Salt to fix those vulnerabilities that we talked about, um, and I said, you know, with a um, pre-auth bypass and a directory traversal, those are conceptually things that are pretty easy to fix. Um, but the catch always is, even when a fix is available, how quickly can you patch? And uh, so we have an article here about a couple. Um, uh, systems, couple organizations that were in fact caught with the salt bug, um, and one I wanted to highlight um, primarily because they did they demonstrated a great amount of transparency and a really nice postmortem um, was Algolia, and um, they described. Um, Uh, pretty much the sequence of events that happened when they saw, uh, unfortunately, one of their engineers being paged um, in the middle of the night because one of their APIs was unavailable. And long story short, they identified that um, that salt vulnerability was in fact exploited to drop two types of malware. Um, Someone, one that was just in there mining cryptocurrencies um, and another one that was set up as a backdoor. And so they went through and um, had to clean that up. They explained how and and, and what their process was for doing so. Um, And one of the other things that stood out to me, too, is if I can find the... um, note I made about it. It was also a, a component in an older tool that had been running fine and they were planning to rework in the following two quarters. Um, so once again, it's one of those cases where um, it's not actually that bad of tech debt that they were going after. It was actually planned debt that they um, had been that they just had now to accelerate cleaning up a bit, but their hand was obviously forced by having this vulnerability be out there. Yeah, I think okay. I, w- the one thing I highlighted out of this, the Al- Algolia case, is they, they identify the culprit as configuration management. So you take a vulnerability with a misconfiguration and you bring the two together and you get this really kind of compounding uh, effect across the network. Um, and we talk, I, you know, I, I know it's not, you know, like sexy and stuff to talk about, but misconfiguration can make a standard vulnerability or even a set of vulnerability so much worse, uh, from, from a, a traversal and exploit perspective, but yet we don't see that same focus for some reason in the security community around the configuration side. We're always chasing the CVE or or the vulnerability, Mm -hmm. but we forget about the configuration component sometimes. It just drives me nuts. Yeah, I think there was um, an angle here. Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, uh, well, first, there's some miscreants out there that are sort of bummed they're not getting their Bitcoin before the halving, so uh, I'm I'm sure everyone's really (laughs) sorry about that. I, I love seeing this. I love seeing companies actually say, hey, look, we had something happen. This is what we did. We, we tracked it down. We fixed it. We, we recovered. We, we came along. We're going to be transparent with you. The problem here, and I hate even having to go down this path, is um, I, I wish they'd sort of responded a little bit differently. Um, and, and this is, you know, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm not doing this to attack them or say anything about it. I'm, doing this, I'm saying this is an educational thing for us, of our listeners. If you have a box which is compromised, and I, you know this, 
This is a lot easier to fix if you're doing containerized or newer, lighter workloads. But if you have a system that is compromised and someone gets in there and starts installing software, erase it, throw it out. Do not try to bring it back to production, which is what they did. So as a security person out, and like, there's all sorts of variables here that I could be missing. I don't know. Maybe this was just in a, a user account. Maybe it wasn't root. I'm guessing it was since it was salt stack. You know, automation package needs root. Um, but there's all sorts of edge cases, so maybe they've got this under control or they rolled back to snapshots or God knows what they did. But just looking at what's in that blog post, um, you guys had some boxes. They were popped through Salt. Um, someone installed software on there to get their Bitcoin, and you erase that and put them back into production. I've got no trust that there's not another backdoor on that system or something else going on. So that's, this is why you don't do what they did. So hopefully they've got um, the, the edge cases in there and they've got things taken care of, but just for everyone else, don't bring something back into production after it's been popped. Yeah, that's a great point. And that ties into two other things I wanted to, to kind of lean on this for as sort of forward-looking you know, lessons. One is what you were just calling out is like systems should either be immutable or if any human touches that production system. And I leave that purposefully just as human rather than like uh, the developer or an admin or a miscreant, um, as you so rightfully labeled. Um, <laughs> throw that away and spin up and, re and release a new clean system. Um, and now that's uh, you know a container or an image or whatever. And that's part of your, you know, immutable system, part of your golden image, your reference. Um, the other thing that I will also riff on here is that um, these were, so these systems were exposed to the internet, obviously, so they could be compromised. There, there's some some considerations here around what does a zero trust beyond corp model look like for this? And how can you have some additional strengthening um, that, I, that says the endpoint that's accessing, accessing this, the client, actually has much more than just a, um, there, there's some type of vetting that, that has gone on here. Whether it is you've dropped a, you've done some provisioning to drop a cert, so the connection actually has to pass a mutual TLS um, identity verification before it can even get to that, um, you know, that HTTPS port with the, the salt admin. Um, on it, um, or what have you. So there's some some lessons perhaps there in terms of hardening. They, I believe, they talked about you know restricting the access to just their own IP address space. That's a very simple, straightforward thing. That's also a very 90s approach. Um, but it can work. And there's also other ways to say if you do have these types of zero trust models, it's not necessarily bad to expose this. I mean, that's what all the cloud service providers have with their SSH and their RDPs. But reevaluate exactly how the how you can tier or have tiers of trust before getting to these types of endpoints. Um, and I think the other thing, so also speaking about last week, we uh, missed the chance to have a um, riff on Galaxy far, far away. So here is uh, Samsung Galaxy. So if you have one since, I think if you have a device since 2014, um, you're likely affected by a um, no-click, in other words, no user interaction necessary, RCE on that device. So obviously somewhat concerning, and you know that Android ecosystem and how you respond to it and how you can patch, speaking of you know what we're focusing on there about that salt, salt stack, um, that's really got to be a strong part of your threat model for your organization. Happy Monday. Yeah, I, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that's all. I'm just saying happy Monday. Good luck with your... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think Paul better look out because I think he he has one of these Android devices. Maybe I think I'm not sure. Um, this is a Forbes article, and what I love about this article is when you try to take security speak and and you turn it into a business context, and just some of the language in here just. It, it's amusing to me. It's a perfect 10 critical security vulnerability. Um, yeah, no, we don't call them perfect 10s. Uh, I do like the concept of zero-click vulnerability versus a zero-day. Kind of kind of, kind of cool. Um, anyways, I, I think this is really interesting, though, because what you have here is a remote code execution in the Android side that's been uh, on these phones since late 2014 all the way through. So there's over five years of phones that are out there that are susceptible to this attack. You know, this is where Apple, I think, has done a pretty good job in protecting uh, the iOS ecosystem um, a little better than, than maybe Android in general. Uh, but these are some of the downsides of, of um like the Android operating system being more kind of based off of Unix and and potentially can inherit some of these interesting vulnerability paths that uh, that you may or may not see in an Apple uh, device. But yeah, there, I think there's a lot of people uh, susceptible to this attack. So it was I, called clickless because our is that the phrase you use zero yeah zero click zero, zero click. Um, that I think at least I first heard that phrase last was what two weeks ago with the Apple vulnerability. Yeah. And what's interesting about this one is Apple came out and said, "Oh no, our software is fine. You know, you go ahead and keep using email." Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at least on on this side, there hopefully um, Samsung will be a little more clear and to the point. But so here's a question for I haven't touched up an Android phone in a few years, but for the folks out there, if any of you guys have them, can't you just replace the stock messaging app with a third-party one and maybe mitigate this maybe 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 so there's yeah so there's there's a couple parts to this one is that actually both android and ios have a strong you know unix-based background there um mm -hmm. and that um that ios email um issue that came up there was a lot of discussion about how much of it was actually was pervasively exploited um versus exploitable um, and some of the conversation in the security community was saying that the heap uh, vulnerability that was demonstrated here in that iOS stack wasn't as a reliably exploitable to like a full RCE. Um, not to say that the flaw didn't exist and it should have been patched. In this case, um, I think this is more, there, there's two aspects of it. One is that Android, in fact, is quite securable. Um, meaning you can do a lot of hardening to it. You have actually a lot yeah. of access more to the source code. Um, however, when flaws are in some of the core, um, if it, well, if it's in the kernel or if it's in some of the core um, system components, then your third-party messaging app, if it relies on, for example, a um, video codec or an image parser, it may still, in fact, be vulnerable to this type of attack. Um, and that's where this this I would highlight more is just once again the problem of dealing with user generated content and specifically image formats and in this case and historically video formats have just so many aspects to them and so many customization and alternate uh, you know alternate ways of expressing basically the math of those file formats that they're rife with potential vulnerabilities and um, these types that can lead to these types of attacks. I think the other thing here is I think when you think about the ecosystem between iOS and Android, you know, Apple, when they release a patch, they can get it out pretty quickly and it's consistent mm -hmm. across the board. You've got yeah. more hardware and other interdependencies here, I think, with 
the Android systems. And, and sometimes it may be a little more challenging to get patches out to all the variations of hardware Android operating systems. And we're looking at, what, five years of devices here? So, you know, how easy is it going to be to even roll out some of these fixes across a, a very diverse hardware and, and software ecosystem? Yeah, and if yeah. even if you look at um, the Android security bulletins, they talk about um, they they talk about uh, vulnerabilities at the system and the media services. So those media services, John, that could sort of answer your question. Maybe you're vulnerable to the chat, but if you're using the media services, um, it depends on that. Um, but then they have a section on their closed source um, vulnerabilities, and then just like you said, Matt, they also have a section on pretty much the the the, the device, uh, the, the different devices that are out there. Um, so there's absolutely a lot of complexity in that ecosystem that, again, I'll, I'll kind of uh, quip and say it is securable, um, but it's so complex that um, Apple, in this case, has done a lot better to say, you know, here is a large, overwhelming majority of users that are on the latest, either the latest version of iOS or the latest point release of the of, um, uh, previous versions of iOS, whereas Android is definitely a lot more mixed. Yeah, and I didn't look at it close enough to see if it was uh, um, which where it will where it fell fell in the app or fell in the kernel. Um, and you know, speaking of, of of content, I hear our our production engineer Johnny is is working on a um, a, a vulnerability to exploit our listeners. I'll be coming out next week on your podcast, so stay tuned for that one. <laughs> there we go, a teaser. Now you're on the spot, Johnny. Yeah, and in fact, this was part of the media framework, and this is sets up a segue because we've talked about um you know over the last last summer, I want to say, early summer, um, we were talking a lot about fuzzing and especially mm -hmm. about the media frameworks because historically that's where a lot of vulnerabilities have come up with in Android. And um, there's a, another article, um, John, that you had pulled out, and this was about fuzzing. Um, and fuzzing is a great technique to use on file formats, um, specifically for video codecs, images, but also in this case, um, you saw a lot of Microsoft um, services being fuzzed here. Yeah, you know, people must think I just sit and like watch what comes out of the Microsoft blogs. Um, and I ask this to my LinkedIn followers, and the same things goes. I'll, I'll say it on here as well. If I feel like I'm apologizing every time I mention Microsoft, I'm looking for other companies to talk about that are doing cool things. So you know, some come to my mind. But if if our listeners out there think of you know someone who has a hundred, multi hundred, well, let's say tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, security budget. Well, Microsoft is claiming two billion, but um, if you see someone else out there has a, a pretty cool AppSec program that's mature, that's doing some cool stuff like what we're talking about. Please let us know. I'm happy to talk about other people, but um, I'm like a fly to the light, and Microsoft keeps does keeps doing really cool stuff. So this one, um, yeah, it think about uh, Microsoft's Windows, right? Huge um, code base. A uh, huge number of feature branches constantly being worked on. The number of commits and pushes a day is in the thousands. How do you secure this thing, right? How do you do some of the stuff we've been talking about? Like, and, and yeah, Mike, I was thinking about our fuzzing stuff as well when I saw this. So the blog post initially, um, our, first I'll talk about the blog post, talks about um, how they respond to some of the things out there. They've developed this framework called TKO. So in a nutshell, what they're able to do is they're able to fire up a copy of Windows in a virtual machine, gets to the point where they suspect there's a, a vulnerability or there's a place they want to test, take a snapshot of that bad boy at that. So your memory state, your your network state, your SMB, everything's set up and ready to go. Um, 
And then from that particular point, so half the problem with fuzzing, right, is actually getting all your your ducks in order, as well as uh, making sure you've got a, a protocol compatible fuzzer and all these different things. So in other words, do all that prep work once, get it nice and neat and organized and automated, and then keep running that fuzz against that particular point. So run a fuzz, it doesn't work, you know, I'd say click a button, but right, it, it's it's automated. Go back, try it again, try again, try again, try again. So what would take a human to, just to set this stuff up, you know, ages, they're able to do in this very fast manner. Um, and and for those who like to, to listen or watch, uh, the the director over this team, Dave Weston, um, did a talk at Blue Hat uh, last, God, this year, Keeping Windows Secure, 45-minute talk talking about this and going through a few use cases of how they actually do this stuff and what's going on in their real world example. So it's, it's, it's super cool. Um, but, but please, you know, it's, it's, if there, you guys think of other companies we should be thinking about or talking about who else is doing really great stuff out there. Um, I'm, I'm all ears, send them our way and we'll, we'll go and talk about them instead. What I yeah, like I about this is article is they use SMB as an example and they get, they give you a lot of good detail of what they're doing and how they're stepping through those those different steps in the process. A lot of good technical background here for other people who want to do similar things, maybe on different protocols or something. Uh, this SMB example is uh, really, really well documented. Yeah, and SMB is great. It's, an, it's another great example to use that they're focusing on because SMB is um, notoriously, one, ancient, as well as um, just quite often. It, it shows up more than once um, in the you know in Patch Tuesdays from Microsoft. And it's one of those things that fuzzing is, a, is great because it identifies either an exploitable vulnerability or at least a stability flaw. And Either one of those absolutely should be fixed. So they're they're fixing, you know, they're making the code more robust as in terms of quality. And depending on where you want to fall into the discussion of, you know, it, is security part of quality? Um, it's it's either a peer of it or it's just part of the quality. And that's what this fuzzing is doing. I will say, John, there's also. Um, I know Google has been running a lot of fuzzing against open source projects, and they've mm -hmm. been reaching out to um, many projects and saying, with both with um, pull requests, saying, here is an example where we think there's a small modification that needs to be changed to your test harness to be able for it to fall into our fuzzing framework. Um, and now I'm going to have to, to go back and pull out the specific name of it. It's based off AF, AFL, um, but it, it's the, the, the name of this, this effort is, is something else. Uh, but they're basically saying it, one of the things that's great about it is like, like Microsoft with SMB, you've got a lot of tests already. Let's just start modifying those tests to have um, – so you can have, in this case, snapshot, roll them forward and backwards, see what happens when things break. But any other open source tools that have testing and are taking um, protocols or taking you know, user-supplied information, your user-supplied content – modify them, fuzz them, find out what breaks. And so um, it would be great to hear, I'll just echo your call for um, advice or call for, for links to articles or projects from, from our listeners about what's going on out there. Are you talking Fuzzbench, Mike? I think Fuzzbench is it. Thank you. Yes. Um, so that's great that we're, they're bringing, again, here is a mature open, you know, mature security program that's well-funded um, that is working with open source tools that 
probably are not well-funded um, and have small teams and may have mature development um, behind it, but definitely don't have mature security on them, um, just in terms of how many eyeballs are looking at them and scrutinizing them on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Cool. And also, you know, open plug, people can go out to our Discord server and connect on there and um, give us feedback that way as well. Absolutely. And I will say too, um, TKO, hopefully um, someone there at Microsoft is a good Latigra fan and uh, loves their Riot Girl music. So um, excellent naming convention there. Um, the other, so you, you pulled out, uh, John, a Microsoft reference. I also pulled out one um, on the topic of IoT, and this was more about their bug bounty and Microsoft's IoT. And I, I wanted to skip over the, you know, just how much they're paying out because that's not so interesting. As much as um, the part about this article that stood out to me is that they are. Um, uh, let's see, what does it say? They're opening up direct communication channels with the Microsoft team and other Microsoft products and services as needed, You know, providing their Azure Sphere development kit, um, product documentation for it, and so on. And what that really means is a way of maturing a bug bounty program. So rather than paying for or, or just encouraging a bunch of people to spend their time to run the same basic Nikto scanners or Burp Suite scanners against these common API endpoints. They're actually you know, trying to encourage people and encourage these researchers to understand what's going on within these systems and starting to poking at the really nuanced aspects of it so you can start to pull out some more interesting types of vulnerabilities that might not be immediately identifiable by fuzzing as well as just won't be identifiable necessarily by simple um, source analysis tools. So that is the part of that type of approach I thought was really good. What I we talked a little bit about this, I think, last year, uh, last week or the week before around Azure Sphere, right? And this is mm-hmm. I, I, what I really like about this is that they're trying to do the right things to create secure IoT environments. And it starts with the firmware and Pluton and, and, and the hardcore aspects of the firmware and the hardware system itself, right, which is part of this. And then Secure World, which is the operating environment that these um, – mm-hmm that run in the chipset, right? I mean, this is how we're going to solve IoT security at the end of the day. Uh, it, it's the only way to do it because anything else we will we'll attempt to do just is not going to do it. So the, the concept's right. Now what they're doing is saying, look, we're going to open this up. You, you researchers help us identify any vulnerabilities or backdoors into the, this environment because if they can get some of the security bugs out of this early on, think about what the future of Sphere means for securing IoT devices for the future. So I, I, I commend them both on creating an environment that can create more secure IoT devices and then allowing the uh, uh, you know the attacker community to actually go out and see if they can find some bugs in in these environments. Absolutely. There's a big difference between us saying like I think it was even last week. Here's a list of, you know, six common things to as a framework for IoT security versus Microsoft diving in and we could call it this is sort of that DevSecOps approach, diving in and saying rather than here's a list of six things to consider, here is an SDK that we are looking to the community to help us harden so that you have a default secure or a default, you know, a secure baseline to start with when you're building this IoT ecosystem. So yeah, that absolutely it's great to see running code is always more interesting to talk about and is always the one that's going to win at the end of the day. 
There is. Um, so I, I and I realize, um, you know, if Microsoft has a little bit of that, what, two billion dollar budget left over to become a sponsor? Sure. Why not? Um, but I will say they, they aren't actually a sponsor for this week or for the podcast right now. But um, I do have another article about GitHub, which was a Microsoft acquisition. So it's just a, a bit of a confluence of events. Um, but this one I wanted to highlight because it is, you know, much like we were talking with Joe in the previous segment and, and talking about using Conjure and Summons and bringing some open source tools into that development pipeline. Um, here now is a way to bring code scanning and secrets scanning um, right into GitHub. And there was a fun uh, phrase here that was um, code scanning is now available as a GitHub native experience. Um, and, and that kind of, I liked that in the sense of we talk about cloud native tooling and use the cloud native components for honestly secrets management or key management. You can have HSMs in the cloud, for example. Um, but in this case, you can just hook up your uh, if you're if you're using GitHub, hook up code scanning or identify. Cool. Here is a list looks like an AWS secret key, or here's a GCP token, um, or a JSON blob that got committed. So now we need to um, identify it, pull it out, and ideally also just immediately revoke that credential. And all of that I think is a really great thing to build into your development pipeline. Yeah. What I like about this is these are some great initial capabilities that. GitHub's giving away is part of it. Um, but beware, uh, there's more that you have to do than just these, right? Uh, we, we were actually digging into this um, with one of our sponsors. We're working on a webcast um, to talk about aspects of this. They give you some b great base capabilities, but then you run into some very interesting scenarios in some of these uh, tools uh, where you don't understand transient relationships and therefore mm. are there some vulnerabilities you know buried two three four levels deep that these scanners can't get we we were just talking to cyberarc for example around secrets this is great for some default secrets but there's a lot of variations on how secrets can be stored in different systems so again some great initial capabilities and i love that github and some of these other places are including this stuff in but don't use it as if I do these, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I've covered everything because there are scenarios where you don't cover it all. That's a great point. And I think um, speaking of also too, as a quick aside, it's made me think this is part of their acquisition of Semel as well. And Semel was yeah. doing um, similar to Fuzzbench. Um, they were just doing a lot of code analysis for many open source tools and um, providing a lot of high quality uh, pull requests and fixes for them. I, I also um, wanted to say, especially to your point, Matt, is that there are also other tools out there that may help with some of those other um, edge cases, or, you know, this is definitely not the place to stop. So speaking of open source tooling, there's another um, tool um, from Skyscanner called Whispers um, that is a, a Python-based tool and more, more recently developed and is in the vein of, I know, for example, um, NCC Group has a similar thing for AWS auditing and a couple different other um, open source projects around this. But it's basically a lot of people are looking for this problem of secrets being committed in source code. So it's not unique. Um, it's a common problem. And there's a bunch of different ways to go and find this. Um, and maybe even if you're not a GitHub user, you could start to look at something like Whispers um, and put that into your own development pipeline. So you still have this capability available to you. Yes. 
Yeah, it look it looks neat. I haven't got a chance to play with it yet, but uh um uh nineteen commits sort of new. But uh you know it's it as you said, the there's the more of these the better. Um help Yeah, they're it. great tools. I just I just wanna caution listeners that there are some great initial tools out there. They do a lot to move you from zero into some level of maturity. But some of these tools also have gaps and that if you just use these tools and you stop there, you're still probably susceptible to a number of attacks and or have a number of other vulnerabilities embedded in the software that these tools don't catch by themselves. So they're, this is a great initial step to build some maturity into your application security program, but there's probably more that you need to do uh, or integrate from other sources. So just, just something that people need to be cognizant of. Absolutely. And I guess that that also means is that that's that's the work for that security team to go out and do that research to bring in those additional tools um, rather than just sitting at the, the checkbox approach and saying, yep, we've got this for code analysis. We've got this for secrets. We've got this for secrets management and uh, moving on to something else. So it goes back to I would call out much more the idea of threat modeling and asking, have we done enough? What else could go wrong? And then perhaps pulling in something like maybe a pen testing or vulnerability scanning. But I think what even if you come back with a clean pen test, that doesn't mean that never means you're secure. It just means they didn't find any vulnerabilities in the areas that they were looking at, which could be a good sign that you have a, a more robust system. But it's it, there. There's definitely that observer bias. They only found what they're looking for. I'm a um, I'm digging around a little further as, as we talk here. Um, Sort of interesting. So while Whispers is a fairly new project, this is being done by Skyscanner, which looks like they're a flight, um, uh, like a vacation planning site for flights and hotels. So, you know, nothing else big ups to have like someone like them actually, like they've got a bunch of stuff on GitHub. So um, maybe there's a, a sign that we're going to see more good stuff out of them. Yeah, they, it was interesting because they'd come across um, my radar just being um, from their, their their security team and releasing tools like this. And um, I think it's just a great mm. sign that um, for as much as we've been joking and talking about, the, you know, the massive Microsoft um, articles this week and what they've been doing, um, as well as we often talk about Google, as well as um, Twitter and Netflix, for, for that matter, in terms of other um, big security organizations, um, there's a lot of small groups out there that are releasing powerful tools. And so um, I guess maybe we'll just use this as another advertisement. Come hop on our mailing list so that you can then uh, get an invite to the Discord. And let's let's hear some more about other tools, um, listeners, that you would like to highlight or um, have us poke into or, or just share on, on, the, um, on these episodes. And I suppose with that, that is a um, good, so that, that's everyone's homework for the week. So no reading homework this week for, for you, John or Matt. So you're off the hook. So, um, uh, so, so lucky on that case. I want to thank um, all of our listeners for joining us. Obviously, also definitely want to thank uh, Matt and John. Um, and we will see you next week on Application Security Weekly.